And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, iTunes, Google Play, Podbeam, wherever podcasts are found. You can find this show. We have a lot to talk about uh, this week as some, some news has come out. Uh, Planned Parenthood actually released their latest annual report. And you may be wondering, well, why are you talking about that? Because it's got some interesting numbers that I think you need to be aware of. As we, as we hear folks say, oh, they do great work and, you know, they're, they're about women and they're about empowering women. Uh, we're going to see that, that it's about so much more than that. We're also going to talk about some things that are happening around the country in our state and, um, and, and things like that. I do want to mention, you know, I mentioned this at a church this past Sunday that, that we live in a time where the culture would say that, that this is, that abortion is a women's rights issue. So out of one side of their mouth, they're saying this is a women's rights issue. We need to elevate women. We need to celebrate women. Out of the other side of their mouth, the same people are saying, now, now we can't define what a woman is. We don't know what a woman is. And if you ask us what a woman is, then clearly you're a bigot and, and you don't care about women. And when we say you don't care about women, we don't know exactly what that means because we don't know what a woman is. Uh, yet they are saying this is a women's rights issue. Out of one side of their mouth, they're saying that men need to pay child support, step up, do what they need to do when it comes to unplanned pregnancies. Out of the other side of their mouth, same men have no voice in the matter and need to shut up and go stand in the corner. You see, when, when you make these arguments, it, it's, it sounds nonsensical because it is nonsense. That's why. And, and as I've said before, eventually... Eventually, the, the abortion argument runs into itself. We, we saw this in New York, where they're, they're claiming that, that pregnant women and, and, and families are being mistreated by Amazon um, employers. They're saying it's a human rights issue. It's a woman's rights issue, while New York allows for abortion up to nine months in pregnancy. See... Those two arguments make no sense. You can't say that pregnant women are being treated terribly and not, given, not being given the, the right environment to, to have children while also saying, in the state of New York, we're going to ab- allow you to abort your baby all the way up to nine months. Both of those things can't live in, uh, together. But that's where we are. So let's start with some news concerning Planned Parenthood. This is... This article is over at Live Action. It says Planned Parenthood has finally released its annual report for 2020 and 2021, which reveals that its number of abortions committed, as well as the intake of taxpayer dollars, have increased again, rising to the highest levels ever recorded. According to this annual report, Planned Parenthood ended the lives of 383,460 babies. Nearly 29,000 more than it recorded the prior year and the most ever recorded by the abortion corporation. In addition, the abortion giant received an additional $15.3 million in taxpayer dollars for a total of $633.4 million in taxpayer dollars for the year ending June 30th, 2021. $633 million dollars. From your tax dollars. 
In 2020, Planned Parenthood Health Center saw 2.16 million patients collectively, delivering more than 8.6 million services. This represents a client decrease of nearly 10%, dropping 240,000 clients from the 2.4 million Planned Parenthood purported to have seen in the previous year. Despite the large decrease in clients, abortions at Planned Parenthood increased by nearly 29,000 to a whopping total of 383,460 abortions. This is the highest number of abortions ever committed by the Abortion Corporation in one year. Planned Parenthood increased its number of abortions by over 8% in 2020, up from 354,871 in 2019. In addition to abortion numbers increasing, Planned Parenthood's total market share of abortion has increased. In 2020, Planned Parenthood's former special affiliate, the Guttmacher Institute, estimates that 930,160 abortions were committed nationally. This means that Planned Parenthood, having committed 383,460 abortions, garnished over 41% of the nation's abortion market in 2020. Live Action News previously documented that according to Planned Parenthood's report for 2019 and 2020, the, the abortion giant received $618 million in taxpayer funding that year, which ended June 30th, 2020. That income from taxpayer dollars made up 38% of their total revenue. <clears throat> according to Planned Parenthood's 2020-2021 annual report, taxpayer dollars to the co- abortion corporation increased nearly 2.5% rising an additional $15.3 million, again to an astounding $633 million in the year ending June 30th, 2021. <clears throat> Taxpayer dollars now make up 37% of Planned Parenthood's revenue. Their report also reveals that while it was granted $633 million in taxpayer dollars, the abortion organization also pocketed nearly $134 million in excess revenue. This calculated from the $1.7 billion in Planned Parenthood's total revenue less its $1.6 billion in expenses. Planned Parenthood's excess revenue calculated uh, in the report shows an increase of nearly 92% from the $69.7 million in revenue calculated from Planned Parenthood's uh, last report there in 2019-2020. Despite receiving more than half a billion in taxpayer dollars, private contributions to Planned Parenthood rose by $69.3 million in just one year, increasing nearly 14% from $510 million to $579 million. Planned Parenthood's total balance sheet shows that the organization's net assets and liabilities have risen to over $2.5 billion. Tragically, every single day, while over 1.7 million taxpayer dollars prop up Planned Parenthood, it ends the lives of 1,051 babies, which equates to one abortion every 82 seconds. So, so when we talk about abortion and when we see folks get, uh, get all worked up and, and look for certain legislation and, and fight other legislation, and when they, when they get upset, when the abortion industry gets upset about Roe being overturned, look, this isn't, this isn't a woman's rights issue. That's not what, what's keeping them up at night. This is a billion-dollar industry. You just heard it. They've got to keep those numbers coming. 
So they saw less patients, but they provided more abortions. Less patients, but more abortions. Over $600 million from the federal government. Now they'll say, well, we didn't use any of those funds for abortion. Okay. Okay. But here's the reality. Those are reimbursements. That's what happens. So, so they'll provide a service. They will get reimbursed for that service through Medicaid or, or Medicare. Or, so that's how they get the federal dollars. Then they'll get grants and those type things. But, but it all goes into the same pot. So again, I've given this illustration multiple times. But if today I gave you a million dollars. And I said, Here, here's a million dollars. Now, the only thing is, with this a million dollars, you cannot pay your car loan with it. Now, you would say, okay, because what that a million dollars is going to do is it's going gonna, it's gonna to take care of my home. It's going to take care of my grocery bill. It's going to take care of my electricity, my, my water. It's going to take care of the school supplies for my kids. It's going to take care of our clothes. It's going to take care of everything. And so as it takes care of all these other things, guess what? The other money that I have is going to take care of my car. Now, I'm going to put it all in the same account. But, but again, I'll earmark your money. I won't use your money to take care of my car. I'll use your money to take care of everything else. And in doing so, it's going to free up my other funds to take care of my vehicle. That's what Planned Parenthood does. That's how they work the system. Look, we're not using this money for abortions. But, but budgets are fungible. So if, if they get 600 and something million dollars from the federal government, that 600 million dollars is allowing them to do a lot that's going to free up the other funds to take care of the abortion. And then, and then the question comes in, well, well, that money that's coming in from the federal government, is, is it not paying salaries? Is it paying the salaries of the folks that take the phone calls that schedule the abortions? Is it paying the salaries of the doctors that are providing the abortions? Is it paying the salary of, of those that are, that are sitting down with those that, that are seeking abortions? Is it paying the, the expenses for the bags that they're handing the abortion pills over to the patient with? Is it, is it taking care of keeping the lights on at the abortion clinic? Is it taking care of the water bill at the abortion clinic? Is it taking care of those things? The supplies needed to provide those services? Is it doing all of that? Because if it's doing all of that, then ultimately it's allowing for more abortions to happen. So anytime someone tells you, look, there's no tax dollars going to, to pay for abortions, that's nonsense. Because we know how budgets work. And again, if, if that $600 million from the federal government is allowing them to keep the lights on, allowing them to, to put new, new bathroom. Of course, they're not, a lot of times they're not doing new things at, the, at these clinics because these clinics are in disrepair because they don't want to spend money in those areas. 
But if, if these funds are coming in and buying supplies and these funds are coming in and paying salaries and these funds are coming in and doing X, Y, and Z, what it's doing is allowing for more abortions to occur. And I want you to think about something. One abortion every 82 seconds. If you found out today that there was a, a vet clinic in Knoxville, and if you, if you found out that there was a vet clinic in Knoxville that was w- killing one unborn puppy every 82 seconds, do you think there'd be an outcry? Of course there would be. Because that number seems like a lot. And so as Planned Parenthood's providing one abortion every 82 seconds, these aren't puppies. These aren't kittens. These aren't calves. These are humans being extinguished one every 82 seconds. And here's the crazy thing. That's just what's happening at Planned Parenthood, which is only 41% of all the abortions that are happening in the country. Now, with Roe being overturned, we anticipate that number decreasing because now we have no abortion clinics in Knoxville. We have no abortion clinics in a number of pro-life states. So that number, we hope, will be decreased in the future. But again, I've said here before, California doesn't report. We don't know how many abortions are happening in California. One of the largest states in the union. But what we do know by Planned Parenthood's own numbers that they're proud of, one abortion every 82 seconds. Does that concern anyone? These are lives. Unique, individual human beings. And yet when you bring it up, well, you're, you're called a hateful, you just hate women, obviously. Not to mention the millions of women that have been aborted since 1973. So there's the numbers. That's where we at. That's where we are in the latest report of the largest abortion provider in our country. We'll be back. So as we continue the conversation, look, the reality is we have we have some things that are going on in our country that should concern all of us. Um, and and what we're seeing as of late is a number of folks that, that are pushing um, the abortion to the extreme. Obviously, since Roe is overturned, they're, they're, they're setting their sights on continuing to push abortion in uh, in different states around the country. Obviously, Tennessee has has outlawed abortion and there's folks upset about that. Uh but but we're at a place where we continue to see people push the extreme. And again, I had this I said this last week. We are my position, some would say is extreme because I'm one hundred percent pro life, but but I'm erring on the side of life. And I'm not gonna apologize for that. I'm erring on the side of life. What did we just look back? What the, this past Sunday was the anniversary of nine eleven. Now, now we remember that because innocent lives were lost on that day. 
And it was devastating. And, and why was it devastating? It was devastating because our country was attacked, certainly. But it was also devastating because what we know was there was moms, dads, uncles, aunts, grandparents, brothers, sisters, cousins, best friends that went to work not thinking anything was going to happen and their lives changed forever on that day. Not only that, but because of that day, you had many in my generation run and join the military. And so then their lives, their, their families and their lives were changed forever because they went and joined the military and maybe they lost their life in the war or lost a limb or dealing with PTSD or, or whatever. So, so that affected so many people. Why is that? Because we know that the loss of life affects everything. Yet when we talk about abortion, we're just like, hey, come one, come all, get all the abortions you want. That is what the message is from the abortion industry, as if life means nothing. I mean, their mantra is literally, some lives do have more value than others. That, I mean, that, that is, they could, they could write, when, when they're screaming, certain lives matter, they could also wear a shirt that says, yeah, some lives do have more value than others. Come get your abortion today. Your life means more than the, the baby in your womb. Come get your abortion today. That, that could be their, their slogan moving forward. And so, so we have to have a conversation about this because what we're doing is we, we have a number of folks. We have a number of folks that, that are unwilling to sit down and have the dialogue and to recognize that this is a, a, a very, very difficult, delicate situation because they would act like the numbers show that all abortions happen because of the life of the mother, or all abortions happen because of rape and incest, when the reality is the vast majority of abortions are done so electively, meaning I just don't want to be pregnant right now. I just don't want to have a baby right now. You see, that's where, that's where many are. Now, now, why is that? Why is that the, uh, the push why is that the push? Why is that what we're starting to hear from a number of folks? Because what we, what we knew before Roe was overturned was abortion was the golden calf. We knew it was the idol of all idols. And then when you take that away, it, it shows itself even more prevalent in our society. And so then we get a real glimpse of what's going on, even to the point that, that just the other day, Joe Scarborough, who's on MSNBC, who, who used to be a Republican, who claims he still is a Republican, he actually said on national television that Jesus said nothing about abortions. Go read your Bible. Jesus said nothing about abortions, and so... You can't say that it's based on a biblical perspective that, that you're pro-life. First off, that's nonsense, and, and 
It's amazing to me. People that, that have so little or place so little value on the scriptures pull that thing out when it's going to help their narrative. It's amazing to me that, that, that we're called Christian nationalists if we dare say from the pulpit, you need to think about your vote before you make it. But when Kamala Harris goes and speaks at a church, she's celebrated. Why? Because they're okay because it, it's working with their agenda when they go and speak at a church. They're okay when they say, well, the Bible that I read says abortion is okay and we are celebrate women and it's fine. But somehow Joe Scarborough and Stacey Abrams and uh, Vice President Harris and, and all of them, somehow they missed Psalm 139. It says we were knitted together in our mother's womb. Somehow they missed that. That, that if we were knitted together in our mother's womb by the creator of the universe, how do you get from that to it's okay to have an abortion? When, when Mary goes and greets Elizabeth and you have pregnant Mary and pregnant Elizabeth, and when, when Mary enters the room, John the Baptist starts doing somersaults inside of Elizabeth. And why is that? So are we just supposed to act like there's no lives happening there? That it's just a clump of cells doing somersaults? That, that, that the text tells us, and, and even Elizabeth says, when you enter the room, my baby started jumping around because the Savior entered our presence, even though the Savior at that point in time was an unborn child, even though John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, was an unborn child? Are we supposed to act like those interactions didn't happen? But see, nobody is going to call Joe Scarborough on that. Because why would they? Well, he's a, he's a Republican. He's pro-life, and he's sitting here telling us and explaining to us what the Scriptures say. He knows nothing. And I get it. These are uncomfortable conversations that nobody wants to have on morning television. And, and if, you, if you say certain things like this, you're going to stop getting the invites to the cocktail parties in D.C. You're going to stop getting the invites to those uh, black tie events in New York. You're going to stop getting the phone calls from the, all the elite Hollywood folks because now you, you know, you're, you're trying to play both sides. You see, they don't mind people wearing the Republican label as long as they, they stay in line with, with their narrative. And it's not just Joe Scarborough. It's actually some in D.C. That, that claim to be pro-life. And then when we send them there, they refuse to vote on the hard things. They refuse to, to talk about the hard things, to say the hard things. You know, when I heard it said the other day, somebody said, well, well, when you make your argument on the pro-life issue, you can't bring the Bible with you. Okay. Now, now Joe Scarborough can make his argument against it and bring the Bible, but I can't make my argument for the pro-life position and bring my Bible. Explain that to me. Explain that to me. And, and, and the reason why they don't want you to bring your Bible Because they can't argue against what the Bible says. 
When it says we were created in our mother's womb, knitted together in our mother's womb by the Creator, when, when they see the text of John the Baptist and Jesus interacting with each other as unborn children, what are they going to say to that? You see, so we stand firm, we stand bold. Why? Because we know that life was created by the Creator of the universe, period, full stop, unapologetically. Life has value. Sure, science points to it too. But science just caught up with what Scripture said all along. We'll be back. So look, I could go on and on about what Joe Scarborough and others would, would say about the pro-life movement. Uh, but the reality is that those, those that are standing in the pro-life camp after Roe was overturned, those are the true ones. You know, what, what's interesting to me is there, there are those folks that claim to be pro-life that, that are even have been quoted over the years as wanting to see Roe overturned. And then Roe is overturned and they start backpedaling. Why is that? Because they're pandering. That's why. And they've been pandering all along. If you start backpedaling after you get the biggest win of the pro-life uh, institution, then, then you've been pandering the whole time. Oh, well, we didn't know that we would... We would see this day. Now what? Oh no, I don't, I don't know what to do. Well, here we are. And at the very least, the veil's been pulled back and now we can see folks' true colors and that's good. We, we now are all playing on the level playing field. It's been shocking to some of us. It's been surprising to, to see that some would want to undo all that we did over the last 50 years. But that doesn't mean we stop. We keep pushing forward and we keep uh, fighting the good fight. I, I do want to mention there's a, there's a piece over at the Institute for Family Studies. And so I spent the first two segments kind of talking about the abortion issue as a whole and what we're seeing around the nation. But now I want to talk about the importance of parenting. <clears throat> and so when we talk about being pro-life, it's not just to see baby born. that We obviously want to see babies born and babies live. But, but it's also the importance of parenting and what that means. In this piece at, at um, Family Study says this, having a child is a profoundly important milestone in my adult, in any adult's life. You may change where you live, where you work, and with whom you spend your time. Perhaps unsurprisingly, a new paper published by the National Bureau of Economic Research finds that parents also become far less likely to commit crimes. The study, authored by economists Maxim Masenkoff and Evan Rose, uses a unique data set that combines records on the arrests, births, marriages, and divorces associated with over a million parents in Washington state. Using these data, the authors address a deceptively simple question. What happens to mothers and fathers' propensity to commit crimes when they have a child? More specifically, they are interested in what the uh, qualitative literature calls the turning point model of parenthood, which is many first-time parents reporting that the birth of their first child was when they got their lives together. How many do you know? How many people do you know that, that, was the, that that's what flipped the switch for them? My brother's oldest son, my nephew, just turned 20 years old. I remember like it was yesterday when my brother came and told us that his girlfriend at the time was pregnant. That's when the flip, the, the switch flipped for my brother. Changed everything. And now my nephew is 20 years old, doing great. 
But that changed everything for, for my brother and, and our family. The effects of parenthood on arrest risk, it turns out, are large. For both mothers and fathers, risk of arrest declines across the four categories of offense, drug, alcohol, property, and destruction. To test whether these observed declines are more than just age, the, 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 the folks doing this study compare the decline among parents to the risk of arrest at the same time among future parents who act effectively as a control group. The results are quite, quite stark. Having a child reduces mother's risk of arrest by about 50% and reduces father's risk about 20%, although risk for domestic violence goes up significantly among men following birth. Childbirth, in other words, shifts women's age crime profile to that of women who have had their first child two to three years later and shifts father's profile to men who have had their first child one to two years later. The motherhood reduction, they note, is on par with the deterrent effects of doubling police funding or the prison population, a massive change. Think about that. Having a child changes the course for mothers to the point it's, it is as if they doubled the police funding in the area. That's the type of impact it has on crime. These effects, the paper then argues, are uniquely attributable to the uh, dispositionable null change that parenthood causes. They note that these effects show up for both men and women and persist even after the child is born, indicating that the effect is not driven by the physical impact of pregnancy. And they are more apparent in first childbirth than second, showing that the effect is a function of the state of change from non-parent to parent rather than the resource constraints imposed by childbearing. More controversial, they find that the effect is not due to marriage uh, co-occurring with childbirth. They find that the effects are driven overwhelmingly by unmarried parents. Married parents, starting from a much lower base rate, see no durable reduction. More surprisingly, they find that declines in arrest precede marriage generally, not the other way around, suggesting that within their sample, at least, people get married after they have otherwise, quote, settled down, rather than settling down because they are married. As the paper puts it, marriage itself marks the end of a long period of dissidence rather than a turning point for criminal behavior. It's possible that marriage has a casual effect on risk for crime outside of the paper sample. We know, for example, that testosterone falls after marriage, reducing aggression and therefore propensity to offend. And we know that a peer's marital status, getting a divorce, can affect your marital status, suggesting that individual marriage can affect community norms. While childbirth can encourage men and women to desist from criminal offending, in other words, that doesn't mean it's a particularly good solution to the problem of antisocial conduct. Taking the steps culminating in marriage before having a child puts individuals at lower risk of offending to begin with, creating thereby a better environment for children to thrive in. Obviously, what this paper is not doing is arguing, hey, if you want to lower the crime rate, just go get everybody pregnant. That is not the argument they're making. But what the argument is, is once you become a mom, once you become a dad, your priorities shift naturally. So if you were living a kind of a wild lifestyle and in and out of jail or or at the very least in and out of trouble and then you have a child things change. Oh I I I got to take care of this baby. I got to provide for this baby. I got to keep my job. I got to work on my relationships. I I can't stay out late at night because I have a baby at home. I I have to pay for daycare. 
I want to be the dad or the mom that I didn't get to have to this child. You see, it shifts your perspective. Now, now some would say, well, not for everybody. Well, obviously not for everybody. There's a lot of folks out there that it changes nothing for them. But for many, it changed everything. And I would be willing to bet many of us know people, or maybe we are that, those people, that having that child, even in a tough scenario, changed everything for us. It gave us something to look for, to, to live for. Nothing else seemed to kind of wake us up from our slumber. Maybe we were having some drinking issues, some, some wild hair issues. Maybe we weren't the best uh, citizen in our community. Maybe we weren't the best son or the best daughter. But now we have a baby and we're, that's what we needed. The switch has been flipped and now we're going to live for something greater, something outside of ourselves. Now, obviously, from a biblical worldview, the, the best case scenario is man, woman, get married, then have children. That's the most ideal scenario, not just from a biblical perspective, but from an economy perspective, from a job perspective, from a productive citizen perspective. All the data points point to the ideal scenario. Man meets woman, they get married. Then they have children. That's best case scenario. Obviously, in a post-Genesis 3 world, in a fractured world, that's not always the case. We know that. But it's the ideal. It's what we want for our children. Even those that, that would say, oh, marriage is a thing of the past. Parenthood is a thing of the past. Go be you. Even those folks, what do they want for their children? They want their children to meet a significant other than to have kids. That is what everybody desires. This past Sunday, I spoke at a church, and when it was over, a young lady walked up to me, and she was holding a baby, probably, I don't know, eight or nine months old. And with big tears in this young lady's eyes, she said, I came to y'all a year ago, and I was scared, and I felt guilt, I was raised in church, and here I am pregnant and not married. And she said, two of your staff members prayed for me, and they said, they said you need to give yourself grace instead of guilt. And she said, I have held on to that this past year, and I'm married now. And she called her, her husband one of those hero dads, because I talk about being a hero, a ghost, or a villain. And she said, he's one of those hero dads. You see, it wasn't easy. It wasn't the ideal scenario. But it's going to be okay. And so I think when, when, when people hear me talk about the ideal scenario, they think as if I'm, I'm degrading single moms or, or single dads or single parents. No, I'm not doing that at all. We, we need to embrace motherhood and embrace fatherhood, even in the chaotic scenarios. Because here's the reality. And I want to make sure I, said, I say this the right way. I saw this the other day, and it floored me. 
because it, it's so true. I, I think oftentimes we think, well, <clears throat> you're going to affect generations to come in the negative way. But the reality is you're going to affect the, the trajectory of generations, good or bad. Good or bad. So, so the question is, a present and loving father has the power to positively impact generations. Listen to this. An absent or emotionally detached father has the power to negatively impact generations. It's that serious. And you can say the same thing from others. So you're going to affect generations to come for good or for bad, whether you like it or not. So we either put in the work now so that we affect it for the good or we stay detached and we affect it for the bad. What are we going to choose to do? We'll be back. Look, I don't, I don't want to gloss over the, the thing I said as we ended the last segment. Often when we talk about impacting generations to come, we, we tend to think that that's a negative thing. So, so we'll hear things like, oh, you know, you didn't have a dad, and that's going to create the trajectory for your life and the life of your grandkids, or the life of your kids and grandkids. But we can... We're going, to inf- we're going to affect the generations to come one way or the other, whether we like it or not. So, so when I think about my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids, what, what type of foundation am I laying for them? Is it, is it one that's going to positively affect them to move forward? Or is it one that they're going to look back and go, Man, that, that dude was the worst. I've, I've heard it said this way, too, that be the dad, be the man that your great, great, great grandkids would want to have your picture hanging on the wall above their fireplace. So that everyone that walks in the house and they say, who's that dude? That they would say, that's the man that, that forged the way for our family. That's the man that set the example for our family. That's the man that worked hard, that loved hard, that that served. That's the man that we all, he set the bar for our family. And the same thing for the moms. That a hundred years down the road, that folks are walking in the home and they're going, who's that, who's that woman on above your fireplace? And that they would say, that's the, that's the woman that set the bar for all women in our family. She showed us how to be a mom. She showed us how to be a wife. She showed us how to serve and love our community. She's the one that we look to. She's the one that set the example. That's what it means to be the hero dad, the hero mom. Not in an egotistical way that one day I'm like, yeah, you better have me above your fireplace. No, it's that that they would look back and go, these are the men that shaped, these are the women that shaped our lives and shaped our families for generations to come. Are you going to be that? Maybe you're looking back and you're going, I don't have anyone in my family that I can look to. But it was a friend. It was a youth pastor. It was a coach. It was a preacher. It was a community leader. It was a co-worker. Whoever that mentor is, what, what are you doing to make sure that we're shaping and pointing our family's generations in the right direction? You see, we don't have this conversation enough because our culture is saying 
that we don't need the nuclear family the way we understand it as tradition. We don't need that. We have a culture that's saying we don't need men in the home. We don't need married couples. We don't need babies. Folks, the, the only way a society sustains itself is if it reproduces, period. And so what are we doing? I heard a commercial the other day that's talking about, hey, it's hot outside. Make sure, you know, if you have your baby in the back seat, make sure you remember your baby. And it literally said, put something in the back seat next to your child that you won't forget. Uh, Excuse me? You literally have the baby. And we're saying as a culture, there's probably something else that you know you won't forget. Maybe your phone. Put it back there behind beside your child, because you know you won't forget your phone. Is, is that where we're going as a society? Yeah, so so what, are we, what are we doing to create these and, and to set the bar for our kids and our grandkids to say this is what family looks like? Because I'm telling you folks, the culture is, doesn't know what a family looks like. And so if we're not teaching our children what family looks like, they're going to learn it from the culture and it's going to look very different than what we would see it to be. Celebrate it. Honor it. Love it. And be the men and women that we've been called to be. It changes everything. It's hard work. But man, is it worth the effort. We'll talk to you next time.